If you're looking for proven ways to take your fundraising results to the next level, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, hosted by Tammy Zonker. Tammy has trained and led thousands of nonprofit organizations to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars and is also recognized as one of America's top 20 fundraising experts. This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now, let's hear from Tammy. We'll start the show in a moment after a word from a few amazing fundraisers about what they value most as members of Tammy Zonker's Fundraising Transformers community. I have had the honor of learning and growing from Tammy. She has really helped us understand how to communicate better with our donors, how to make sure that our mission is at the front line of their decision making. And she has just been an absolute joy to learn from. That's Stevie Shoemate from Chapters Health Foundation in Tampa, talking about how being a growth member is helping her communicate better with her donors. When you join Tammy's Fundraising Transformers community as a growth member, you get live training and coaching with Tammy twice each month. You can get your burning questions answered during her live Ask Me Anything sessions. You get to join in Tammy's live weekly hot topic discussions. You can engage with other fundraising pros like you and her private and safe online community. And you get 24-7 access to her growing library of on-demand fundraising training videos and tools. Here's Jenna Sapluski from the Coalition for Children, Youth, and Families in Milwaukee talking about how being a growth member in Tammy's Fundraising Transformers community is helping her grow her capacity, her skills, and her confidence as a fundraiser. It's been so helpful for me to grow my capacity and my skills. I feel more confident uh, knowing that I have Tammy and the Fundraising Transformers group for support. I've reached out to Tammy and the group on several occasions, whether it be just some wording for an email to say, hey, can somebody give me just a little bit of feedback on this? I'd love your thoughts before I send this out for an initiative. We'll hear more later in the show about why Jenna values having access to Tammy's members-only, on-demand training library. To learn more about the Fundraising Transformers community, visit fundraisingtransformed.com forward slash growth. Today on the Intentional Fundraiser podcast, I'm talking with Tim Sarantonio. He's the director of corporate brand at Neon One. They're a provider of innovative end-to-end nonprofit software solutions. And today we're going to be talking about the future of individual giving, something that we are all keenly interested in. Tim is an internationally renowned speaker on generosity, technology, and all the trends in the social goods sector. After helping causes raise more than $3 million, he moved to providing support for thousands of nonprofits through his work at Neon One. He has spoken at AFP International Conference, the N10 Conference, TEDx, and holds a certificate in philanthropic psychology from the Institute for Sustainable Philanthropy. Tim lives in upstate New York with his lovely wife, three lovely daughters, and as he puts it, two perfectly fine cats. Yeah, they're all right. They're okay. (laughs) Welcome to the show, Tim. (laughs) Thank you, Tammy, for having me. Thank you. 
Yeah, well, it's our pleasure. So, Tim, when we talked at the AFP International Conference in Las Vegas this year, you had a hot, off-the-press, neon-one report titled mm-hmm. Donors. Yes. Uh, understanding the future of individual giving, which is phenomenal. Like, I've already dog-eared it. I have it digitally and in print. I mean, it's an incredible resource. Well, thank you. It's already out of date. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, such is the the nature of research, right? I mean, we, <laughs> can, we can get into that, and, and that's kind of not only an intentional choice, but kind of how we approached it in the future state, too, so... Yeah. yeah, yeah, makes sense. So the report aims to answer the question, where is individual giving going in a post-pandemic world? Tell us about this exciting report and the research behind it and, you know, really what Neon One is seeing for the future. So kind of touching on what I meant by it's already out of date is one of the things I started observing is that there was a lot of stuff being published lot of uh, digital ink getting put out there, so to speak. But when the pandemic began, everybody, one, didn't know what to do. And two, in turn, when our sector specifically for the nonprofits started getting advice, it was based off of information that was from 2019 at best. Maybe January 2020 at best. So... When I kept seeing this and I kept seeing advice on both sides of the digital versus, you know, you need to just keep doing direct mail or stop fundraising, you know, all that type of stuff, all this weird advice that kept coming out. And I said, well, what's the actual reality here? Because we live in a in a media environment where it's hard to understand what exactly truth is. And so I said, OK, how about I just read literally everything that's come out as much as possible books, journal articles. I went back and got my JSTOR account reestablished, <laughs> like the whole shebang. Blogs, PDFs from, from companies all over, you know, interactive dashboards, whatever, right? So much. So much. And so that was around July 2020, and or 2021 rather. And so I said, okay, let's synthesize this because this is a lot. And that's what I kept hearing even from people who are tapped in like you, Tammy, who are like, like, it's your job to pay attention to this. Everyone was just like, it's too much. So I said, okay, what happens if I build one report to rule them all, so to speak, answering those questions of who, what, when, where, why, how, be a good detective about it. Yeah. Like the Rosetta Stone, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. Just got to try to find it. Right. And so that also held true to a few core things that I think are important that in turn Neon One tries to keep as kind of their brand values, which is like authenticity, making it actionable and making it accurate, right? It's got to be useful. It's got to be easy. And it's, it's got to be something that like works. And so that's kind of how we did it. So if somebody like Bloomerang or Blackboard put out data that was good, well, guess what? We're going to talk about it. A lot of times those get suppressed. That gets through the review process because I'm in marketing, right? I know how these things work. And so it goes through the review process and it gets cut. Nah, I think let's just like link to another thing, right? Right. So 
that's kind of where it came from, but we wanted to focus on just that core set of questions around individual giving. So grants, foundation giving, those are things that definitely had their own trends, but that's not what we talked about here either. So that's a meandering answer for you. I love it. And I just want to distinguish really how generous, you know, to essentially publish and talk about research data from essentially your competitors. Yeah. Right. Because you're because Neon One, you, your colleagues are committed to the greater good. Mm-hmm. And I just want to acknowledge that because I think it just you. speaks to the quality and the character of, of you and your organization. The reality is, is that the vast majority of the nonprofit sector, 97 percent making under one or five million dollars total. Right. The real enemy isn't somebody that's from the outside, a competitor, a, you know, even in business to call people enemies and stuff is weird. Right. So like that. But some folks do take it that way. The real concern, the real, real enemy is the apathy that's happening outside of the sector toward the sector and things like e-commerce usage for Netflix and Disney Plus and things like that, where that's where the real concern is. It's not the internal nonprofit tech space. So whatever, they they do their thing. For me, when I look at it, it's like Jeff Bezos is going to take your donor's money. It's going to be Elon Musk. He's going to suck up that thing with whatever weird thing that he's come out with. And we're going to then hear through perhaps things like effective altruism that uh-oh, nonprofits aren't as efficient as they can be in delivering good. And it turns out they are. They are. They are. There's a lot of misinformation. So that's that's thank you for acknowledging that. My I like to reframe it for po- folks listening that like don't use tech that helps you. The real concern is is these things that are taking the attention away from the real work that we're doing. Yeah, really powerful. So, Tim, what surprised you or excited you the most about the findings that you published in the report? Time. 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 The time The time data. I'm a little obsessed with seasonal appropriateness, for instance. We had a big argument on whether it's okay for pumpkin spice lattes to even be sold now. <laughs> and, and this is being taped in August. So, no, the answer, it is not. And I try to teach my kids seasonal appropriateness. So, so I think about time a lot, and there's also time time in the day, right? And so, in the report, we looked at when donations are coming in, and we have that information from the fundraising effectiveness project that has Bloomerang data and Donor Perfect data and Neon One data and Kila data, and that's always where my thought process starts is the large aggregated data set as opposed to our stuff. But if we can't get it, then we have a lot of great information internally, $2.2 billion in analysis from 2021 alone that we can draw on. Wow. Pretty good. Pretty good. So time is one that calendar year we can look at for fundraising effectiveness project data. We know the date that a gift came in and the amount and if it's a unique donor or not. So that's how we get industry retention rates. But What time of the day an online donation comes in, Fundraising Effectiveness Project is not going to tell you that. So I asked, when are people giving online? Because I had a theory, Tammy. I had a theory that people would be getting buzzed 
and we'd see a spike on a Sunday because they like checked their email or they saw their friends on Facebook or something like that posting during the game. Cause I've, you know, heck knows I've done enough sports betting, charitable, like off the cuff events sure. for, for Super Bowl that it's like, well, maybe there's other people like me. No, <laughs> there's, <not. laughs> there's no one like you. <laughs> there's no one like me, but there's, but so most people are donating at 11.30 a.m. On, on a Thursday. Amazing. But here's the fascinating thing. Remember, if I'm worrying about the guardians at the gate of the e-commerce world and the venture capitalists coming in and the tech bros coming in and saying, I know how to be better at fundraising than you, it means that I need to study that too. Mm. When... Are most people, and this is pandemic-related data, when do you think most people are doing their online e-commerce shopping? Yeah, 11.30 a.m. on a Thursday. On a Thursday. <laughs> so what that tells us is know what is activating people that will capture their attention, but we have the leg up. This is what I always like to say. The other things that I learned through Institute for Sustainable Philanthropy, chapter five is is basically an existential chapter of like looking in the mirror and saying why. And the human brain is wired to give. We are inherently generous as humanity, right? Like that's why philanthropy means love of humanity, right? And so that means that we have an advantage biologically over e-commerce if we can make the experience pleasurable then people are more likely to give their money to us psychologically biologically than do i really need this other trinket that's being thrown in front of me right right and we likely get a bigger boost of oxytocin those mm -hmm. feel-good hormones chemicals rushing through our body correct when we make a gift to change a life Versus, you know, a new hand mixer. Regardless of your income, University of Michigan's data panel that looks at the demographics across a wide variety of items. What what they found is that regardless of your income, you're giving to charity. Mm -hmm. A portion of your annual revenue, even at the lowest levels of income in the United States, people are giving to charities, not you know, there's still great things like mutual aid that can sometimes in an emergency especially be very impactful to get money to versus a little bit slower bureaucracy. We've seen this in, you know, places like Haiti, for instance. But more often than not, if you're looking for long term institutional change, the nonprofit space is the best place to put that money. Mm -hmm. You know, it just reminds me of something else I read in the study. I mean, you talk about how we are hardwired to give and mm -hmm. most people households are giving households yeah and it was fascinating to me when you looked at demographics like race mm -hmm. that people of color specifically i think it called out african-american or black folks yep. give a greater percentage of income mm -hmm. than caucasians which kind of flies in the face of some of the stereotypes we've had in the sector well, and that's, yeah, black families give more than white families per capita. And that's from the Federal Reserve directly. So that's one of the things that helps is that the data is the data, right? Yeah. So one of the things that we did in the report was, was also 
invite voices from outside our company to round out perspectives that we might not bring uh, or know about. So Sabrina Walker Hernandez, for instance, fantastic consultant, does a lot of different work, but she wrote about black philanthropy in America specifically. And that book ended the, the, the why chapter. So we actually even put the report's first chapter out without needing to enter an email or anything like that. Got to enter the email if you want the whole report, right? <laughs> like, like Timmy's got to pay his bills somehow. So I got to get some numbers there, folks. But like, but ungating content is important to us too. A lot of people force you to have to enter some sort of transactional email situation in order to get stuff. So we put the first chapter out and I was really happy it was that chapter in particular because of the demographics chapter. Yeah. And so it was like, your potential board member leadership or even your own long-held assumptions about your donor base are most likely wrong. Yeah, powerful. So, I mean, it's so, and you work with a lot of folks, Timmy. I'm turning around. This is not just a one-way conversation. I got a question for you. When you went through that, how is how were most leaderships approaching that type of question if they're even thinking about it? Yeah. I mean, I think that it is a question that's being had, especially at the executive leadership team. I don't know that the boards are so much talking about it mm -hmm. right now, at least in my experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we, we absolutely want to diversify our funding pool because we want to raise more money. But more importantly, we want to be more inclusive organizations. Yes. Right? And I mean, I've had the privilege of fundraising in the city of Detroit for, gosh, close to 15 years now. And the, of course, Detroit is the city of Detroit population is like 86% African American or identify as black. And so it's fascinating to me how generous that community is and how they gravitate to causes where leadership like the executive director, the CEO, the founder, are people of color. And why is that? It's because they see that they are welcomed and they belong. Yes. Right? And so when we look at, when any of us, like, hold up the mirror and look at our boards, do we have boards that are representative of our communities? Mm -hmm. Do we have executive leadership that are representative of our committee, uh, communities? And if the answer is no, then fooling ourselves that we're going to really cross that threshold into inclusiveness. So two two points on that. And and that's that's really powerful stuff too, because it opens up the question of of again identity in many different ways. So that's something that I love unpacking. I think it's one of the most important questions that we can ask ourselves is basically who are we and why do we matter? If you as a nonprofit professional are even struggling right now, it is more than okay to say why have we always done it that way, right? Yes. And so representation also is powerful. It was a weird job, but my first job did teach me some important lessons in the nonprofit sectors for a day labor organizing center on the south side of Chicago. And so I was the second employee grant writer. It was 2008. Right. So it didn't go well. Let's just skip to the end there. It didn't go well. But I did learn that they prioritized and it's something that did stick with me of like, why doesn't everybody do this? They 
ensured that day laborers were on their board that had a a direct say and were in the room when decisions were making. And so I think that that is a very critical question for any organization to ask is, do you represent the community that you serve? Right. This is where donor centrism goes off the rails, Tammy. We know this is that it turns into donor primacy. The issue is not donor centrism in copy. Right. Like that's the part of it that, like, you know, I think is interesting is that part of the conversation and critique of donor centrism is one, it's against donor primacy. And two, a lot of people, even on the quote unquote team donor centric, have forgotten that it's simply getting its roots in appeals, copywriting and like fundraising tactics in many ways, strategy and tactics. But it's not like organizational structure like that's different, you know? Yeah. And somewhere in the middle. Uh-huh. I think is the solution. Like Absolutely. And we're in such a divisive culture right now. Yeah. People feel like they need to take sides versus like let's take the essence and the strengths of both of these and create something new. To your point, let's throw out why we like doing things we've always done because we've always done them that way. Yeah. It's a it's a great time to do that and it's a great time because donors are paying attention to it too. That's that's another important point is that they are looking for that community. They are looking for that cooperation between different nonprofits on projects. We saw some really powerful things. This is actually where it is interesting to think about the larger trends because us fundraisers from the events people to individual, you know, major gift officers, like even the corporate folks, we forget that there's the whole program and foundation world Right. The small shops, they know, like, I got to hustle for this grant and I need to go ask this donor for a gift. But especially you get to slightly larger organizations and they're a completely different department. And what was fascinating is I love paying attention to the foundation world. And and one of my favorite people to collaborate with is Corinne Mitchell of Flux and who they serve the, the kind of corporate or the government space and the the private foundation space specifically. Like Ford Foundation uses them for grants management. Sure. I love talking to her because it's like, what are the, what's happening over there? Like, it, like, it's a completely different world, but it's the same world, right? Yeah. And we just forget about it. And we saw a lot of big movement in the universal grant application for instance, use one form in a community so I don't have like 20 different foundation forms that I have to do. And that kudos to TAG and folks over there for doing that. So really, really great stuff. Fascinating. Yeah, I know. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm going off tangent, though. It's good, though. It's a juicy tangent. So, but let me move on to the next question. Yeah, absolutely. So with giving down year over year, According to Giving USA, like we adjusted for inflation, right? There's a slight decrease. What is it? 0.7% decrease year yeah. over year when adjusted for inflation. Yes. We have, you know, current inflation and a possible recession brewing as we enter into the fourth quarter. Mm-hmm. Tim, after like pouring yourself through all this data and looking at the trends and the big picture, what's your best advice to nonprofits who really count on year end giving, which is all of us, <laughs> to, to meet their revenue goals for the year, to support the programs and the mission delivery. What's your best advice? Keep asking. I, yes. I, I mean, that's, 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 that's the, 
the basic too long didn't read there. Uh, so with the caveat that I've never seen accurate historical data on when there was a recession and a pandemic happening or multiple at this point happening at the same time. Uh, ni- the 1910s didn't have uh, formed a data set. But yeah. so th- with that caveat that like this is literally unprecedented in many ways. It has shown if you go back to even 2008 and that that kind of like bummer town of of my first job, nonprofit individual giving went up. So recessions don't automatically mean that your organization is going to get less money. And this is really critical. This is why I focused on time, because it came with the most interesting actions that we can take. Geography is an interesting one. Demographics are a good starting point, but time is something that I can look at and go, okay, I can like do something with this, like immediately. Mm -hmm. And so first time donors, and this is fundraising effectiveness project, not neon data. So in my opinion, it's stronger and more representative of the average reality. First time donors gave at a higher rate, like 30% of them come in in November and December. Okay, so there's still time to do it. But here's what's even better. Their retention rate as a first time donor is significantly higher, like 40 percent versus the typical 18 that we see the 26, you know, blended, all that type of stuff. We're talking like basically one out of, you know, three, one out of two, one out of three are going to come back more often than not, even in the current environment. So that's critical and a lot of times those year-end donors are are larger size gifts too so that's important but let's not forget the small folks because that's one of the biggest things that we are seeing of grave concern is that bad retention rate is because a lot of first-time donors to the sector as well as first-time donors to nonprofits, just are like turned off by the process mm-hmm. and they don't want to give again Mm-hmm. So, because yeah, the overall donor retention rate for first-time donors, according to Fundraising Effectiveness Project, is just under twenty percent. Yeah, eighteen point six as a twenty twenty-one. Yeah. So what you're saying is, if they give in that year-end window, there's a higher retention rate, like just by thirty or forty percent wow. in the data, right? Like just it's just in the data. So that that tells us a few things. You can you can make some assumptions. So there's a bit of an assumption here, but I think a lot of this is strongly correlated with communication cadence. And so one, if you if you think you're sending too many emails, you're not. You're just sending bad emails. And same with direct mail. It's not that the communication is too much. It's that the communication is not personalized. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Wow. I mean, that deserves a pause. Right. I mean, when I work with clients, I talk with them and I say, write to your donors like you're writing to your grandmother. Yes. Like so much love, so personal. There's no on behalf of. Right. Like no, no formality and just gratitude and impact and stories and personalization to your point. I I'm not going to call them out by name, of course, but I did get an email from an organization to my personal account. And they said, we'd love for you to join us at so-and-so event coming up. Like, 
please commit and be part of the honorary committee. And I looked at the form and it said platinum, yeah. gold, and it had a $50 difference. And I wrote back and I said, what's the difference between the two? Because now I'm not being asked to be me, to be me, Tim Serantonio. I'm being asked to like be part of this honorary committee thing. Like this is an identity. This is like a really weird identity thing where it's like Tim wasn't asked I'm being asked to join a thing that I don't identify with. So I immediately entered into it from a transaction standpoint as opposed to a love standpoint and said, what do I get? And he wrote back like, well, your name is under that thing. And I said, is there, wait, is there anything else? Like, is it just the 50 bucks and then I'm on this thing versus that thing? And she's like, but if you commit by tomorrow, oh, then you can get in the book. And I'm like, I, I just didn't respond. But like, that's that's what we talk about with personalization is what is going to make me perk up and say, this is for me. Yeah. Yeah. Not a transaction. It is funny. You should name the the grandmother thing. My my mother's birthday's on Saturday. And so I had the kids sign the, the Hallmark card that I bought in New York City's Dwayne Reed. And I remember John Lepp's thing about in creative deviation slightly make the the stamp crooked and yeah. so when i put it on there it's like ha it shows a human did this <laughs> and then it's I gonna be so it. obvious when she opens it up because of the you know the seven and twin five-year-olds who like scribbled all over it oh beautiful yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's exactly how we should engage our donors mm-hmm. Be- mm-hmm. because your mom won't even she won't throw that card away Right, she's gonna save it. It's gonna be in a drawer. My mom that- might throw. My mom might throw. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but but more often than not, Tammy, yes, the typical, and that actually is an important thing because we always try. We always get so hung up on the outliers, and we have a little bit of an internal value system at Neon One that that our CEO Steve Kreider put together, and it's basically like we call it eighty twenty. Right. And so it's a little bit of a flip of the Pareto principle, right, where you hear, you know, 80 percent of the revenue is driven by 20 percent of the people. Right. Like that's the Pareto principle. This is different when we say his interpretation is. Hopefully I'm not giving away any secret sauce here, but like basically you cannot be 100 percent or zero percent focused on a project. You, if, you, if you're on a project, you, you, there's going to be something in the back of your head clawing away your attention slightly. So 80% is likely going to be focused on a project, an initiative, a goal, whatever. 20% is then should be driving eventually toward that, though. What's your 80? Who's an 80 on a project is the thing that we say internally. Yeah. If it's not your 80 and you're not a 20, which is an advisory role, basically, be quiet. Mm. So where that comes into play is nonprofits, I think, need to ask themselves, where's the 80? Who's the 80 on a project when it comes to driving this revenue and paying attention to it? And so uh, I think it's some powerful stuff to kind of reevaluate what we prioritize as well. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like in our sector, we just feel like, Yes, yes, yes. We just keep piling it mm-hmm. on and we're going to just do our very best to get through it all. And there is a lack of prioritization and focus. I was just leading a three-day workshop with a crisis pregnancy center in Philly. 
and they have a big nut to crack. Like they need to raise like 1.5 million between now and the end of this calendar year. And it's like, great, let's get all of our initiatives, all of our fundraising channels, put them out on the table and let's decide to your point, which are the must succeed factors. If we're fundraising inside churches, which churches generate the most revenue? Which do we yep. have the closest relation? Like, let's put those are the must succeeds. And then these smaller parishes, like, like, will find a way to meet their needs, but they would be like, they're the nice to do's, should do's, not necessarily the must do's. And the same yes. with major donor portfolios. Well, and that's, and I think, and this is where the nuance is so hard, Tammy, because you can also step back and go, well, that means I should just focus on major gifts, right? And like, it's like, no, because you need to create that multi revenue stream pipeline of people who are interested in your mission. And so, small dollar donors, if you turn them off, you're never going to get a major donor out of that. That is very true. And I do think that that is some of the space where, uh, again, hopefully we're able to add staff to, you know, to focus like that could mm-hmm. be their 80. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But also that's the place of automation, automated workflows where that can kind of pick up that slack if done well, if done in a personalized way. We're back with growth member Jenna Zapluski from the Coalition for Children, Youth, and Families in Milwaukee talking about how having 24-7 access to Tammy Zonker's on-demand training library is helping her become a better fundraiser. Since joining the Fundraising Transformers group, I have had the opportunity to go back and re-watch a host of trainings on such a wide variety of topics from how to work with my team members inside my organization to how to get my board excited and passionate about fundraising and topics like how to reach out to a donor and how to get a meeting with a donor. Here's Stevie Shoemate from Chapters Health Foundation in Tampa, sharing that as a growth member in Tammy's Fundraising Transformers community, you're never alone. How members of the community support one another by sharing resources and lessons learned to help solve tough fundraising problems. You oftentimes learn from other people across the entire country, which is really nice because it helps you understand that you're not alone in your uh, fundraising challenges. um, I was just sharing with someone the other day that it really helped me feel like I wasn't the only one experiencing these challenges, knowing that someone from New York or New Hampshire or Texas, um, people all over the US with varying communities and different fundraising strategies, we're all in this together. At the end of the show, we'll hear why members enjoy learning from Tammy and what you can expect when you join as a growth member in her Fundraising Transformers community. To learn more about the Fundraising Transformers community, visit fundraisingtransformed.com forward slash growth. So I want to pick up on something you said earlier when we were talking about mom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we must get a whole lot better at understanding our donors and meeting their needs, to your point, at every gift value. So talk to us about the role of donor surveys and personalization through journey mapping as as tools to meaningfully connect with our donors. So kind of the philosophy that I've been trying to develop on the intersection of donors, fundraisers, and technology, to your point. 
is that there's kind of there's three main rules to it that help address the question that you just asked. So, so rule number one is you focus on people, not their money. Yeah. Right. That's rule number one. If you listen to this podcast and you only get one thing out of it from me, that's the one that I want you folks to get. Focus on people, not their money. But number two is that you should prioritize the, the experience of that connection. So that's where the donor journey mapping really kicks in a high gear. And then rule number three is technology can be an accelerant to it, but should never get in the way. Right. Mm -hmm. Like don't rely on an email when a phone call will be better. Yeah. Type situation or an in-person meeting or things like that. Right. So when you're thinking about the journey, a lot of times, and even I'm evolving as I get deeper into my marketing career versus my original fundraising and sales transition. You know, I went from kind of mercenary to, to, to missionary in a way, right? <laughs> and so where I've evolved there is that even personas are things where I'm like not entirely comfortable with. And so there, because because people are fluid, even your your kind of mood might influence how you are going to receive a uh, communication. Now, sometimes we cannot control that, but we, if we map out the process as much as possible and understand what touch points we are going to have with our donors, we're a podcast, so so I, I, I could show you, Tammy, but, but I'll explain it to people. You can literally map it out, all the different steps. That's what I'm showing Tammy right now. And, and there's great platforms like Lucidchart, or you can use um, kind of Google's pages design feature. And you can literally create boxes and name them like this is step, 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 you know, fork in the road, that type of stuff. So if you say, okay, step one that somebody's going to become aware of me is my website. What is the website experience like? How mm -hmm. can I even personalize the website to people who want to do a bequest? Right? Do you try to shove everything onto that ways to give page? Or... Are you making it more personal to be like, you know, be generous? And then they click that and then it shows the different paths that they can take. Are you basically a marketplace or are you more of a journey that somebody's taking? Right. Yeah. Like that they're yeah. that they're going through and finding more like a farmer's market where you're picking up what you want in a way. Right. And to the degree that we can know that. Yes. Through surveys, through, um, you know, even if click through mapping, right? We can know what did attract their attention. And the, then some, go ahead. You've got oh, no, no, there. sorry. Just because I don't want it to fly away. So, and surveys are hard in particular because people lie all the time, intentionally or not. So sometimes a survey can give you a good indication, but you should also gut check it by looking at the transaction data to see if it bears out. Like if you get on a survey that you sent out online that 60% of people say, I prefer to give online, and then you design everything around your online given survey, there's a bit of bias there, right? Versus, hi, I'm 65 and I've been doing direct mail at, you know, responses and remit envelopes and suddenly that gets cut from the budget because of a survey. Right, right. Yikes. So, however, a good 
easy thing that anybody can do right now, especially if you're your database allows this is collect an open text field that says, how'd you hear about us and, and make that online. That's fine. Um, you can add it to a remit envelope, but likely you already know very likely where that person at least came from, from a direct mail appeal, but online, I don't know. You never know what they're going to say if it's open text. So then you could step back and say, okay, like, let me look at, is there any trends that lead to mapping a little bit more? So yeah, yeah, I, I, I could kind of go on there, but let's let's uh, I'll kick it back to you. So. Okay, you know, just to underscore though, you know, even just a simple thing to do is is go online and make a gift to your own organization, mm. or write a check and see what happens, or ask a friend or family member you know, to write a check so it feels a little more uh, not connected. Like, oh, it's Tammy. The secret shopper. The secret shopper. The secret shopper, exactly. I mean, it's just really fascinating. And when I was chief philanthropy officer at the Children's Center, I mean, for nine years, I would often sit down with some of our supporters, even at those higher gift levels that were the closest to us, and I would say, I want to ask you some questions about your experience. And I want you to be totally candid Mm -hmm. it won't hurt my feelings it'll actually help us a lot just talk to people and don't be afraid don't and don't ask if you're not prepared to like the answer yes and do (laughs) not get defensive oh that oh i know that was terrible that was only because did it did it did it like that's uh that's not helpful yeah not at all (laughs) yes all right a new question donor acquisition What are your thoughts right now on how and when to create an intentional data-informed donor acquisition strategy, you know, especially in our current giving environment? Well, I think people will get some of the Giving Tuesday data that they just put out did show, and everybody here is Giving Tuesday and they might recoil, but like the reality is, is that Giving Tuesday is much deeper and doing amazing data work when it comes to informing where generosity is going, because generosity is time, talent, and treasure, right? So they did find that, one, 60% of donors are responding to appeals, but 40% are just kind of giving on their own whenever they want, right? So you might not know, and that actually patterns with some of the data that we looked at for the where question, we didn't just answer geography. We also asked about channels of acquisition. And so Data Axel found that about 43.5%, something like that, did the same thing, unprompted online. So the other thing, and this is actually a bit of a danger in some ways, is, is assumptions that your end of the year will not have a strong acquisition component. Well, guess what? Remember, Fundraising Effectiveness Project said that 30% of the first-time donors are going to be coming in in November and December. So make your acquisition strategy a year-round strategy that has nuances for different times of the year. Be seasonally appropriate about it, but it's a year-round strategy. And so that can come in a few different ways depending on the organization, but no matter what, it's something that should be, in my opinion, year-round and omni-channel, mm-hmm. direct mail and digital. Yeah. Yeah. And face-to-face. I mean, when we think about you know all the channels, those warm introductions from major donors, monthly donors, right? Yep. Yep. So 
all of the above. Our peer-to-peer platform, for instance, on Giving Tuesday had like an 80% acquisition rate for new donors. That's incredible. So like that's powerful stuff, like peer-to-peer networks where somebody's a champion on your behalf. Like that's a fantastic acquisition vehicle. My my wife is running a Ragnar Relay um, in honor of her sister who passed away of breast cancer. And like they do a fundraiser every year for that. And it's they do peer to peer. And there's all these people who like we met, you know, at some parent event or something. And now they follow us on social media and then they're being exposed to this thing that's important to us. And now we're important to them, you know, so they might give so that, that you never know where these things flow. It's the, so true. the butterflies flying, you know, mm-hmm. everywhere. Love it. Love it. Well, lastly, Neon One is cooking up some very exciting uh, offerings, like really something super exciting. Tell us about Generosity Exchange, what it is, and how our listeners can benefit from it and learn more. Well, thank you for asking about it. It's a passion of mine in particular, because Generosity Exchange is a two-day, as of now, virtual conference. But we try to make it where it's an experience. A lot of times people, they attend the Zoom thing, they sign up for the webinar, they say, I'll watch that later, they don't watch it later, and it's not going to stick with them, right? And I also don't want a situation where people sign up for newsletters, they say, I'm on every single newsletter, and then they don't make it actionable. So want to make it easy, actionable, and an experience. And so GX22, hashtag GX22, if we go that route, is two-day virtual conference, and we talk about kind of three primary things, donor insights, fundraiser support, and technology. That's that's kind of what it's all about around individual giving, but we got some other fun things that we have cooking up. So our keynote speakers, Edgar Villanueva. Wow. And Denise Barado. So he's going to be having a a keynote conversation. That's why we call it Generosity Exchange. There's a lot of interviews. There's a lot of opportunity for people to interact, chat, you know, get hands-on workshops, that type of stuff. We even have a premium workshop with Michael Buckley of the Colo Group on December 13th as a premium add-on to this October 19th, 2022 event. We're going to do a day-long workshop on donor retention. Mm. And you get a swag box with the premium stuff too, but we want to make it that it's affordable, accessible for anyone. So you can register for free. It's just the goodies come with the extra ticket. So it's Mm -hmm. not a requirement. You get the recordings and all that type of stuff, but really excited about it. Really excited. Well, I'm excited about it too. In fact, I just got my, uh, they upgraded the premiere ticket this morning. So cannot wait. Yes. Awesome. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Well, I I am just so thrilled with what we have cooking. And I know you and I are cooking some stuff up too, but GX is a good way to kind of say, look, I want to be um, primed to think differently about fundraising. And you don't have to use Neon One products to benefit from it. But for any users, there are some really cool things that are going to be announced there too. Mm -hmm. So got to see that. Very excited. So at the end of each episode, I like to ask a few rapid fire, insightful okay. questions. All right, let's do it. You ready? Yes. All right. Number one, what's the best fundraising advice you've ever been given? I would say that that the thing that sticks with me the most is Professor Jen Chang, 
during the Institute for Sustainable Philanthropy Certificate course, which I cannot recommend enough. Agreed. It's so good. And so a big item that has influenced what happens at our company is focus on people, not their money. Focus on people, not their money. Remember, if you remember only one thing from our podcast, it's that. And so uh, it's so powerful in its both simplicity but depth. Yeah, it is. We should make T-shirts up. I'm just like writing this down. We should. We, we should. should. <laughs> well, guess what? Generosity Exchange, Bonfire, the T-shirt company, fantastic folks over there are sponsors of it. So there we go. <laughs> Love it. I've Love been it. trying to get fundraising slogan T-shirts. So, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Tim, what book do you recommend to our audience and why? Okay, this is a hard one for me. So I have an extensive library. Um, I'm, I'm a Luddite when it comes to books. My, and it's funny because my father's an author and he like is Kindle only. I have to order books. I just have books all the time. So uh, I'm going to do three if that's okay. I love I, it. I have them right here. Uh, for nonprofit sector specific, I'm going to recommend Dollar Dash, The Behavioral Economics of Peer-to-Peer Fundraising by Katrina Van Huss and Otis Fulton. There's a lot of great books in the sector, a lot of great books. It was hard to choose between this and Hooked on a Feeling. But um, I'm going with Dollar Dash because of the behavioral element and impact that peer-to-peer can have. Because it, if you figure out one-to-many you easily can then figure out one-to-one. Yeah, beautiful. So so that's that one. Uh, for brand development, um, Marty Neumeyer's The Brand Gap. You can get this done in, in two hours, but a core item that nonprofits have to ask themselves are, who are we and why do we exist? Mm-hmm. And and Marty Marty is awesome. Love everything that he does. But that book in particular, I read it on a plane, and and it is a well worn copy on my book. Uh, I'm going to be talking a lot about brand in the nonprofit space because I think that's the next round of analysis and sophistication. Is that fundraisers need to become better marketers, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the final personal development one is is I do like um, The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. So it's a little bit of a reflection on stoicism. Don't roll your eyes, folks. It's not just a white dude thing, um, <laughs> though I am a white dude. But, like, I do like that book because I took Latin, too. So anything with Marcus Aurelius, like, and things like that, it's interesting. But there's some elements on, like, being able to keep calm under pressure, that's helped infinitely to kind of ground myself in like, there is a bigger purpose than mm-hmm. just me here. And so yeah. that's helped. So those are my three. Excellent. I love it. And I love that they're in three distinct categories. That's so you, Tim. That's so me. <laughs> Thorough, strategic. You know, clear. Love it. Thank you. Oh, that's a high compliment. (laughs) It's intended to be. Mm -hmm. What are the top three characteristics or traits that one needs to be a successful fundraising professional? I think people need focus. That's why I like 80-20 in particular is, is you need focus. Um, Because it's personal, I think you need to, to, to have patience. 
Uh, this is something that it's taken me a long time to also do is, is to not only become more patient, but also be collaborative. Mm-hmm. I think that, that um, knowing that you're part of a team, that you have a focused purpose for your team, and that you feel supported to execute on those things because it's like, we, this is our focus. This is what we're going to do. We're going to do it together and we're going to do it well. Let's be awesome at this because we know it's going to move the needle. Like, it's hard to not want to just go off on your own sometimes. And, and, and so, especially for leaders, and many times the fundraisers are the, the leaders in the organization, whether they, they know it or not, because it's not just a title that designates leadership. It's the ones that that say, you know what, I'm going to bring you along with me. And that's something that I've had to, to struggle and learn, especially through the pandemic, right? Like, it's harder to convey sometimes when you're not in person. Mediums like this are great, Tammy. But I know that we'd have a much different type of conversation with if we were in person. So to be able to have that emotional intelligence virtually is it's been a learning curve. Mm-hmm. Such good response. Such good insight. Uh, so this one, you might have just a teeny bit of a bias. What's I, your favorite fundraising tool or application? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yes, I of course I have a bias for for Neon One. I I I'm not only a member, I'm the president. I'm not only the president, I'm a member, right? <laughs> like I use it for a few nonprofits. So let's let's try to not talk about us in the sector. You know, I think the secret weapon, and this is going to be drawn from Rachel Muir. The secret tool that you are not using is your ability to text a donor. Hmm. So what I want you to do, and this is all Rachel, but if you're she's listening, amazing. she's amazing. So we had her at our dream big summit, which was all about creating generosity experiences, right? Like another important book, by the way, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, right? And so Too Long Didn't Read is like peak and rule. This is another thing that that I think is an important item going back to the donor journey is remember that people are not going to remember the average of an experience, right? Like, like we said a lot of great stuff in this, folks, in this podcast, but you're really going to remember one thing, and I bet I know which one, and how it ends, Right. That's the peak end rule. So Rachel said, in a room full of people, take out your phone, go text a donor, and thank them right now. So do that. Yeah. Do that. Pull it out and, and do it. And then tweet at Tammy and tell what happened, basically. Please. Yeah, do it. Do it. Do it. Love it. <laughs> so, yeah, I would I would say um, – uh, that's that's a favorite underutilized tool, and anybody can mm-hmm. do it. Anybody yeah. can do it. I love it. Tim, this might get you in a little bit of trouble because I know you speak at a lot of conferences, mm-hmm. but which fundraising conference is your favorite and why? I love the local stuff, if I'm going to be honest. So there's a really great industry conference, but only like 150 people can go, so I'm not going to say that that one. It's Confab. Uh, which is from the National Council of Nonprofits, and everybody walks up and says, hi, I'm like, I'm Montana, because it's really only the state associations that represent, you know, hundreds of thousands of nonprofits. So I love going to that. But for individual fundraising, nothing beats that local touch. Mm-hmm. Nothing, nothing 
is more fun to go and especially where I live, I'm part of the AFP Hudson Mohawk chapter. And so to be able to go to their philanthropy day, I pitched a session, a new session that I'm very excited about. And I know I'm going to be able to tailor and personalize it because I live here. And and I love going to that in other areas like New Orleans or Virginia. I went to Richmond for VFRI and that ability to say and ask what's happening here. Because people yeah. might raise their hand in my presentation and say, that doesn't happen here. And I go, that great. Like, yeah, you tell have, me about that. Yeah, open up. So this is how we learn. So that's 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 where the, the geography question, the where question gets a lot of fun for me. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I would I would say the local stuff, the national, the international and the national stuff is fine. It's it's they got it. They got to get into the virtual world more. That's that's the, the thing I want to say there is like not everybody can go or feel safe feels like they can safely go mm-hmm. so yeah. get your virtual game up big Love big it. conferences get them up good last question knowing what you do now about fundraising what advice would you give your younger self who's just starting out in the profession it's almost like uh, uh like better salt better call salt just wrapped and and they they reflected a lot about time like even H.G. Wells, The Time Machine, there's a scene, no spoilers, that relates to to going back, right? And so uh, one of the characters in a scene says, like, that's just a regret machine, basically. Mm-hmm. So that's always hard now to reflect on that, like, what would I tell my younger self? Because it could it could have a butterfly effect and, like, impact. Do I... Do I go and dump $90,000 into post-doctorate, you know, degree path that isn't going to pan out, right? Like that's – because that was very hard to live through that. So I would say like enjoy the journey. God, this is the 40-year-old. I mean like what – what <laughs> that's – come on. But I sound so cliche, but it's like it is. Like I have young kids and it's so hard some days – to not feel guilty working and not just like playing with them. But at the same time, it's like kids can be boring. Like, like, you know, like they're just going to like sit there and watch TV. Like I'm not contributing to anything. So like it's that push and pull of, of like what is enjoying the journey actually mean. Sometimes it's for yourself. Sometimes it's for others. And so just recognize the difference. Yeah. Very good. Well, Tim, thank you. Thank you for joining us and sharing your incredible insights on the future of individual giving um, and a whole bunch of other things. Yeah, I know. We got too philosophical for this early in the morning. Oh, I love it, though. Well, so we'll definitely include a link to download the full Neon One report on giving in the show notes. Love it. If you want to learn more about Neon One, check out their website, neonone.com. We'll include that link as well. And where you can follow Tim and Neon One on social media We'll certainly be including a link to learn more about Generosity Exchange. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast. And keep on transforming your fundraising so you can transform the world. We're back for a final word about Tammy Zonker's training style and what you can expect when you join as a growth member in her Fundraising Transformers community. Here's growth member Jenna Sapluski from the Coalition for Children, Youth, and Families in Milwaukee. 
Tammy is so encouraging. She's very empowering. She really wants you to succeed in your role. And that really comes through with everything that she does from the monthly coaching calls to the monthly webinars. The guidance I've received from Tammy and other members of the Fundraising Transformers group has always been so constructive, so beneficial, and you can tell everyone in the group wants everybody else to succeed because we all know what a challenging job it can be to fundraise for our, our wonderful causes and our organizations. You may be asking yourself, can a growth membership really help me improve my fundraising results? Is it worth my time? Laurel Grow from Phoenix Family in Kansas City shared that her organization increased charitable dollars raised by 132% since joining as a growth member. Becky Shambliss from Awake in Anchorage, Alaska shared that her organization increased donor retention from 13% to 69% in about a year using what they learned from Tammy's training. And growth member Amanda Johnson from Multiplying Good in Indianapolis shared that her organization exceeded their annual fundraising goal by 104% and grew overall giving by 13% in one year by applying lessons learned from Tammy as a member of her Fundraising Transformers community. Here's member Stevie Shoemate again sharing how she and you can grow your fundraising skills as a growth member of Tammy's Fundraising Transformers community. This is the first fundraising role that I have ever been in before. Um, so at 30 years old, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, well, how do I rocket launch my fundraising expertise? You learn from Tammy Zonker. That's what you do. Become a member of the Fundraising Transformers community. To join our live monthly training and Ask Me Anything sessions and get access to our growing library of on-demand training videos and tools and share lessons learned with other fundraising pros like you in our private and safe online community, visit fundraisingtransform.com growth, click join, and get started today. That's it for this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast. If you like this podcast, subscribe and download each episode on your favorite podcast platform. Share it on social media with the hashtag, The Intentional Fundraiser, and tag me, Tammy Zonker, and you'll be entered into a drawing for some great swag, books, and courses. And if you like today's show, you might also be interested in becoming a member of my Fundraising Transformer community where I go live twice a month with my members with fundraising training and group coaching to help transform those fundraising issues that keep you awake at night where I pull back the curtain on how you can take your fundraising results to the next level by teaching ways you can improve your development operations create a results driven donor centric development plan strengthen donor relationships improve your donor retention rates and build a raging monthly giving program and a successful major gifts program and how you can approach each day to ensure you'll perform at your highest level so you can be the best fundraiser and the best person you can possibly be. Thank you for showing up and for having the courage and determination to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. Bye for now.